seekers of all right film files here's the story we're brought together again by fate destiny whatever you want to call it let's enjoy the next hour together because tonight is going to be a little bit different it's something that i've been thinking about for a while ben and Stu have taken the night off because well because they're not here so i have two other dear friends in the studio with me who you'll meet in a minute but tonight is all about recommendations and suggestions and just essentially bathing in cinema for an hour. So we each have three movies that we're going to try to sell you on, and I think it's going to be a good time. I'm Jimmy Malone. I am Matt Pleasant. And I'm Ryan Hildy. And stay with us. You're listening to 90.7 WAZU, and we're called Movie Show Theater. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Open the five bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What do you want? You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around and pull it down. What's your favorite scary movie? Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Now, globby, bottle of cheap, stinking chip oil! You warthog-faced... Half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder! So I got this idea, and I'm sure that you guys struggle with this too, the Netflix dilemma. I mean, even mm-hmm. if you don't have HBO Go or Hulu or any of the others, even if you only have Netflix, it is so hard to come up with a movie to watch. Like, so what do you, do you mean like it's just so oversaturated with th- things or yeah. like there's things that you... Uh, th- this isn't universal, but what I don't. I hate getting half an hour into a movie and realizing that I'm probably not going to like it and I've made a huge mistake, but I have a very specific time frame that I can watch a film, so it's like, well, yeah. I'm already invested in it, so I want to see how it ends, but like usually if I'm going to, I'm like, all right, I have two hours to watch a movie. So I have Netflix up on one, YouTube up on another for the trailer, and then Rotten Tomatoes up on another. Not really for the critic reviews, but I love the user reviews Mm because usually that's more down to earth. That's what I look more at is, you know, how are are the general audience uh, responding because – I feel, I feel like critics sometimes it's it's their job to be more. Uh, I don't want to say pessimistic. They're kind of cynical, them, though. But mm-hmm. it, there's a very cynical nature to you know that a lot of critics ex- kind of express, and uh, so, so I look more towards um, people who go to the movies not really necessarily to dissect them so much, but to just kind of sit back and take it in. And, and I, yeah. I think for me too, when it comes to like browsing through netflix because there are so many different choices i can it's like no not that one no not that one there mm-hmm. isn't it's hard to find something that really jumps out at me as far as something that i haven't seen before something that piques my interest is something that you know even if it's not there aren't there are a lot of movies out there that aren't maybe mainstream or like um an example of that would be like snowpiercer oh, is a movie yeah. that had a, a, a a, sm- a smaller theatrical release, but kind of got a a groundswell or a cult following around it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's available on there, so that's one that's like, oh yeah, maybe check this one out. See what, 
but there's just so much out there that has no real buzz about it. It's hard to say, like, well, let's give this one a shot. And yeah. and it's I, I think Snowpiercer gained so much steam once it did hit Netflix. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about before we started recording that it's so great to go into a movie with no expectation because um, you're very unlikely to be let down or disappointed or, you know, like with... Um, we just finished talking about Star Wars, but when all of they when they started releasing all of those trailers, you know they if you watch all five however many trailers there were, that's like seven minutes of the movie that you're expecting to see. And a lot mm-hmm. of times with trailers, especially horror trailers, they'll release trailer they'll release the trailer while they're still in post production. So whatever sure, you saw yeah. got cut since then, or mm-hmm. you know they filmed it just for the trailer, right? right. So it's always kind of a bummer to go into a movie and you're like halfway through and it didn't take a direction. That, but anyway, so that, that was the whole point of, of why we're doing what we're doing tonight. So I like I, how you said um, <clears throat> how, when Snowpiercer uh, gained some steam. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was totally intentional. <laughs> Not that that was great. I, yeah. I tried I to sell it. that movie by telling people that if you want to hear Captain America talking about eating babies, <laughs> yeah, you'll go see Snowpiercer. I loved it. I quite enjoyed Snowpiercer. Well, I, I think it's one of those movies, too, that's best. Like, there are some movies that you can sit there and you can pick apart the logic behind it and perpetual motion. But it's hard. I, at least it's harder for me these days to sit down and watch a movie and be willing to just listen to the story mm-hmm. yeah. and just take the the world of the theater as it is. Um, and Snowpiercer is one that I just was able to buy into. Mm-hmm. And so I credit the filmmakers for that, of just creating this world that is like, you know what? Let's go for it. I love, yeah, I, I love that as- the aspect of containment and kind of um, that sort of like theater sense of all of this is happening relatively in, in one location, even though they, you know, travel mm-hmm. to different points in that location. They're still housed within it. So. You know, everything is happening, you know, kind of within this one place, this story that's developing. It's it's very neat. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you build characters up, if you build them well enough that you care about what's going to happen to them and you can see their goals and motivations, you don't have to explain what caused this nuclear holocaust. You don't have to explain all of these. It's like you're saying, it's everything is out, every, anything outside of the train is totally irrelevant. But there's such a there's such a broad spectrum of commentary that's going on within that that small oh, space. For sure. So there's a dynamic of like, you know, all of these, you know, specifically like sociocultural kind of issues that are being addressed. Those are really broad subjects to really get into and then to have that contrast within that confined space is mm-hmm. really cool. Sounds like one of us should, probably should have picked Snowpiercer. <laughs> <laughs> so see Snowpiercer. Yeah. Um, it's on Netflix. It is on Netflix, yeah. Yeah, I tried to find some that were on Netflix. I'm going to start with House of the Devil from 2009. Did I you see House of the Devil? I have not. Okay. Well, it was directed by Ty West, who is Eli Roth's butt buddy now. Right. <laughs> and he's done a couple that are real low. He did one called The Innkeepers, and then he did a, a new one that was produced by Eli Roth called The Sacrament, which I don't really care to see. I saw The Innkeepers, and I was very let down. But House of the Devil, the best way that I could describe it is a time capsule of the 80s. 
because as far as film conventions, they've come up with so many different ways to get a character portrayed on screen that in the 80s, like I would say probably early 80s is when this movie is supposed to take place. And they don't really use cranes. They use Zoom and the the clothing, the cars, the, the whole color gradient of the film is just so washed out that you almost feel like you're watching this movie on a VHS. And um, I saw it too, and and I, I love that aspect too. I, I noticed one of the things that stuck out to me. Yeah, the the beginning, the the intro to the movie, they use freeze frames for the credits, mm-hmm. um, and I've I've always just loved when they. They don't really do that so much anymore, but it was huge in, like, the Warriors days. Yeah, man. Warriors did it really well. House of the Devil, yeah, it was was a throwback. Yeah. You know, it was definitely a throwback, very reminiscent, and in all the right ways. And I I thought it was a really good example of, you know, there's so many things to absorb when you're watching any movie that the actual narrative story is a very, very small part of the whole experience. And so... You know, the plot of the film is basically this babysitter goes to a creepy looking house and that's like kind of the setup, which sounds really simple. And it sounds like, oh, yeah, that's been done a thousand times. But there's a a woman at the beginning who is her new landlord and the teen has to come up with this money to pay rent on her new house. And the landlord's only in it for like a minute. But I just had a feeling I was like, I bet this woman is been in a lot of other things too because the whole movie is just such a love letter to 80s horror it is mm-hmm. yeah so i looked her up and uh it's d wallace and as soon as i saw that name i was like oh i know that name she was in the original 77 hills have eyes she was in the 1981 howling she and she was in critters and cujo i was like oh that's that's nice i bet she really loved that role she probably really appreciated what he was trying to do yeah Yeah. i'm sure with that resume she could probably just kind of walk on set hand the resume and be like can i be in this yeah exactly (laughs) yeah she might not even have known they were filming a movie (laughs) she's so disillusioned yeah mary waranoff there's only like five characters in the whole movie but uh this mary girl she plays the um one of the owners of the house she was in silent night deadly night or Silent Night, Bloody Night, I'm sorry. Death Race 2000, which is one of my favorite Roger Corman movies with Sylvester Stallone mm-hmm. and David Carradine. And Chopping Mall, which is one of my favorite B-movies of all time. And Fairytale Theater, the TV show with Shelley Duvall. Did you ever watch that? Fairytale Theater? No. Does that ring a bell? Um, no, but I me. feel like if I would have seen anything with, with Shelley Duvall in it, God, you'd remember <laughs> it would be imprinted on my brain. For, God, oh, yeah, that. that's right. <laughs> that's a sad fall from grace. I, I never know. thought she was a fantastic <laughs> actress, but I read some online article of what she's up to these days. And and she made Popeye. She did make Popeye, and that's true. Uh, yeah. she could have died after The Shining, and she would have been a successful actress. Yeah, and The Shining really Nobody made her, else could have done that. Yeah. Those teeth when she's in the bathroom is just unforgettable. Yeah. That's a that's a spin-off film right there. Yeah. <laughs> There's an opportunity right there. The teeth of the mm. shining. Seriously. Featuring Shirley the Ball. She could just eaten that door down. It's a different it's you know, yeah. Uh but yeah, the the ending <laughs> the ending isn't the most incredibly original, mind blowing ending, but like I said, it doesn't really matter because it's the it's the journey and it's all the different unnecessary touches in this film that are so much fun to watch 
there's some good jump scares. There's some good shocking revelations, but I, I don't I don't need jump scares in horror for it to be in my mind a good horror movie. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like the motivations and goals we were talking about earlier. Too much yeah. in horror, they'll kill a character off really gory. But I mean, you can slowly cut someone's head off with a like a bread knife and and make it really drawn out and and graphic. And I'm not yeah. going to care if I don't care about the character. Right. Exactly. My my uh, my thing about horror films is it's not a lot that um, I, th- I gravitate uh, more towards the psychological and atmospheric um, type horror films uh, as opposed to like jump scares, you know, type mm-hmm. horror films stuff that kind of bends my mind and twists a little bit in a direction that I don't ne- that I don't necessarily you know go to in my mind sometimes or it's a place that's kind of uncomfortable to visit. That's that's that is a success as far as when it comes to like scaring me. But to go back mm-hmm. to um, what you're talking about, there's a lot of beauty and simplicity, especially in horror. If I mean, so in in House of the Devil, I think really like you said. I mean, it's you know, it's this girl shows up to the house, babysitting job. That's kind of where it kind of starts. Yeah, it's supposed kind of to what, seem familiar. Kind of what there is. Yeah, and but the, but. Some of the 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 simplest avenues in um, creating films, whether it be um, uh, the plot, you know, the narrative, or just like the environment, or like um, the minimalist sort of tone, overall tone to things, um, can really be way more successful than any sensationalized or glamorized or bloody chop fest. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's so there's a lot of I think there's a lot of beauty in in the fact that it is uh minimalist I, i'm gonna use the word minimalist yeah totally and i you think if, if you can take such a familiar setting for a horror movie and make it fresh and make it original and give us something that we haven't seen i think that's a challenge that a lot of directors don't want to step up to you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if somebody handed your script and was like here make this make this movie about a babysitter going to a haunted house well i think what's what's <laughs> interesting about horror too and you touched on it Matt about the psychological is and too with a minimalist aspect I feel like when you go with the minimum your mind is able to fill up the rest of the space yes and so when you get into the psychological versus the jump scare that's what sticks with you after the movie in the in the theater the jump scare can be kind of fun because that's what gets the heart pounding the adrenaline going mm-hmm. but it's the the psychological in that minimalist aspect that lets you think is the killer in the backseat of my car? Should I open the closet? Did I lock the door? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the lasting effect that, for me, makes horror films fun, too. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, I don't remember who said it or if somebody said it. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> At some uh, point, someone may have said. But I'm going to say it. Well, um, there you go. Yeah, this um, is a direct quote. Sometimes what you can think of in your own imagination is scarier than what anybody else can show you. Yeah, I feel like most of the time. I mean, if you're not a very imaginative person, then no. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people that go to movies to be completely taken away to another place in time because they don't have that imagination to do that otherwise. And Mm. the whole suspension of disbelief, it's like for the next two hours, I will believe anything that I am shown or told. But you have to show it to me. Like, Stu hated, God bless Stu, I love him to death, but he hated Blair Witch. 
yeah. with a passion. And well, I rewatched it before we did that, did a podcast on it, and it's still effective. It's super, it's yeah. super effective. And it's not because I'm like a more imaginative or creative person than Stu. I'm not saying that, but it's just it's interesting with you know with horror that less is more so much of the time mm-hmm. because I mean as far as how my ADD adult mind works like what I'm imagining in that darkness I promise you is more terrifying than anything you can put up on screen and as soon as you show it like I was all about I was like 100% into signs even when Joaquin watches the alien walk across the courtyard in the video mm-hmm. the Mexico video I was still totally on board for that. And then as soon as they showed the alien at the end, I got knocked down a few notches. It it, it lost me. I Dude, I was in the same place. Yeah, same situ- same yeah, exactly the same sort of situation with me when I was watching it. Like part of me was satisfied cuz you you do want to see it. I mean, I was in Blair Witch. I was like, "Please show Blair Witch. I want to see what she looks like." Yeah, what but then this? they don't, but then you have to deal with that. So it's like I'm picturing her as I, I don't know. You couldn't have made it with their $30,000 budget or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, too, Signs is a movie that is in the interesting, I guess, category of a movie that I think it becomes less effective the more you think about it, the more you yeah. watch it. You That's so bring up a good point. After you get, yeah. like, that would, because of the way that it presents you, I guess the fears that could manifest itself in your mind afterwards start to kind of fall under the weight of their own pretense. So. Mm-hmm. I guess if I were to take the example of like driving home in the car, it's like, well, I don't have to worry about the aliens because I have a bottle of water. Mm-hmm. And so it's just right. You yeah. Know, it's, I got a bottle of water. I can, I'm going to be fine. These aliens, they have, they don't stand a chance, man. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. I think, I think too, um, with Blair Witch and I think other movie, horror movies that have been, um, pretty, uh, considered pretty widely successful i mean something that comes along with success is um it gets satired a lot Mm -hmm. and i think after so many years of people um satirizing it and like um doing uh kind of making fun of it it kind of i think dilutes that sort of like that initial like its initial impact so if people have never seen it before but they've seen it been made fun of and they go back and they watch it they have um they might go in with kind of like these already kind of preconceptions of of what it's been made fun of for but if you kind of like if you have the ability to go back and kind of take your mind out of that and and put yourself in a place like you're watching it for the first time and i'm going to agree blair witch is incredibly effective mm-hmm. and that's and that's not only because you know i've gone back and have done that and kind of watched it and tried to watch it through those eyes but i remember seeing it for the first mm-hmm. time and it's it's impact on me mm-hmm. and it was scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the the level of tension that it built, that initial impact, I'll never forget. No matter how much it's made fun of or thing with with like the Sixth Sense, for mm-hmm. example, totally dug it when it first came out. And always a rewatch on the Sixth Sixth Sense after you've after you've seen it. And um, if you haven't seen it yet. I guess I won't spoil it, but then again, if you haven't kind of seen awkward. it yet, I don't care. I imagine you would probably accidentally kind of see it along the way, along your way in life, but um, of course, the, you, you see it in a different way when you when you go back and you rewatch it. Mm-hmm. But it's another example of one of those movies where it was taken and kind of I see dead people, you know, it's kind of made made fun of and satirized, and but like the initial impact, once again was awesome mm-hmm. well that too goes i think the satire following after a successful horror film 
is kind of like how a lot of our initial reaction after being scared is to laugh. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, so just in the broader sense, you have, I guess you could say like this film or anything that's like scared society and its reaction then is to poke fun at it, you know, kind sure. of put it at arm's length a little bit, make it a little a little less haunting. Yeah. And the whole like, yeah. mockery is the best form of flattery. You yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I was you know, saying. You know, it's, it usually happens with pretty successful you know, ineffective films mm-hmm. because they resonate and kind of hang around in the mind. It's like, yeah, I do something with it, you know. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> so it becomes a kind of a, a crux for a, a lot of different things from like, you know, whether, you know, somebody's uh, making fun of it like in a sketch on SNL or um, just using clips or tones or sounds from it or like just things that stick out prominently, you know. Well, do you want to go to uh, your movie? I will. I'll go to my movie. Um, I'm. I'm gonna go with Super, and I don't know how many people have actually seen it. I mean, it's not really. It's accessible on Netflix, so I know it's out there, and people have probably seen it. I kind of also chose it because this past week, Deadpool came out. I got a chance to see Deadpool. I loved it, but of course, Deadpool kind of the R-rated, you know, more graphic and, and more. Uh, uh, I'll just go with more graphic, the more graphic superhero story. Super is an incredible uh, film that was directed actually by James Gunn and written by Sean Gunn. His brother and James Gunn, of course, was responsible for uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and is responsible for the for the sequel. And Scooby uh, Doo, thank you. And, oh, Scooby Doo! <laughs> had to bring up Scooby Doo. <laughs> I just saw it. I wasn't waiting to uh, bring yeah. that out. I swear. But anyway, yeah, yeah, the gritty graphic um, superhero tell. So, super. Features Rain Wilson and Ellen Page. And also, can't think of her name off the top of my head. She was Liv Tyler. She is Liv Tyler. Yes, she okay. is. Okay. She is still Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Liv Tyler's in it. Uh, Kevin Bacon mm-hmm. um, is Fun the role villain. For him. Oh, man. I always love the bacon. Uh, but I think uh, I really wanted to talk about Super because I think it f- fell under some people's radar maybe or it may be in some people's cues and it's kind of just been buried. I definitely recommend it. And my recommendation comes from its general kind of effect on me from a story standpoint. To just speak a little bit about Super um, without giving too much away, it kind of um, is the tale about a man who loses his wife to uh, drug addiction. Rain Wilson is the main character. His wife is uh, played by Liv Tyler, and um, she goes off with this drug-dealing villain who's played by Kevin Bacon. And it's kind of an introspective tale about uh, Rain uh, Rain Wilson's character kind of goes on about um, why'd she leave me and uh, what's happening to her with this with this guy, this, you know, this, this drug dealer... And uh, I need to get her back. And uh, he goes through this, you know, long period of depression um, before finally uh, running into Ellen Page's char- uh, character in a comic book store. And they sort of like sync up. They both, uh, Ellen Page is, has a tremendous character um, in this. She's totally crude, <laughs> super like over the top graphic. She totally embraces it. So it's a very interesting role to see her in, but she kind of convinces Rain Wilson's main character to become a superhero. It's kind of what he reads out of it. And then um, he's even more inspired when he sees um, 
watching, I think his name is The Holy Crusader, and he's played by Nathan Fillion from uh, Firefly fame. Those two things together kind of um, inspire him to become a superhero and kind of go after his wife and kind of save her from this this drug-dealing villain who's got her hooked on, you know, heroin, whatever she's on. As you as you follow the tale, it's kind of it escapes your kind of conventional superhero story, and that's where it really grabs me because you kind of have this conventional superhero tale of some sort of trauma or tragedy happens, and it happens to this you know this specific person, like for example, Bruce Wayne loses his parents in an alleyway, and it's this traumatic event that kind of spawns this sort of uh rebellious you know i you know i'm i'm gonna get out there and i'm going to you know serve justice you know so this you know never happens you know to anybody else because it happened to me so it kind of starts off like that with his wife leaving there's kind of like you have like that tragic moment you know that kind of inspires him to go on this journey to become this kind of street level type superhero who goes around wielding a monkey wrench and uh smashing people in the skull with it it also has a lot of dark comedic values to it, so there's a, there's a lot of uh, comedy to it, um, but it's those things that you're more uncomfortable to laugh at. I think, right. too, with it, what what's interesting about Super, and it reminds me in some ways of Kick-Ass. Well, well, yeah, we were talking about that earlier. It came out two weeks before yeah. Kick-Ass. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. And that's, I think, an unfortunate, because I think Kick-Ass kind of... Kind of overshadowed it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, wasn't a better movie. I like Super better, personally, but mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that because there's been a trend in Hollywood more recently because of how Nolan's Batman trilogy was considered to be more grounded in reality, you have Kick-Ass and Super, which are interesting in that these are normal people with no real superpowers going against people that they that are just evil mm-hmm. in life. And it's not afraid to examine the consequences that can come out of mm-hmm. vigilante justice. Not yeah. just for the villains, which is what we usually see from like the Marvel universe or, you know, the DC universe. It's, you know, what happens to the bad guys, but there's a cost that the good guys take too. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that's explored really well in Super. Yeah. Yeah, that totally is. And that conventional superhero type arc of going on this kind of. I think it touches on kind of like how superheroes you'll see most often, their journeys are very self righteous. You know, I think, you know, it's. It's very, um, you know, something happened to them. So, you know, it specifically spawns off this sort of kind of vengeance that's very, I don't want to say self-absorbed, but I think Mm self-righteous is more of kind of the word. And you see his character in Super going a a very kind of self-righteous sort of journey. And it takes you to the very end of this superhero arc where you get into the, you know, the big battle, you know, with the bad guy and not to give too much away, but you know, there is basically you get, you get your, your, uh, your big conflict at the end, but then it kind of throws you a little bit at the very end. And with a story like super, it kind of takes the tale of a man who is like that and turns it on its ear. And you start looking at, uh, the consequences of things happening, how it, how it truly affects other people and how chains of events, can actually, you know, not necessarily be totally revolved around uh, the central superhero character themselves, but perhaps, you know, things that, you know, are not concerning them at all. The things that they do and the consequences rendered from them are not, you know, necessarily important in regards to how it affects them, 
in their um, continuing self-righteous pursuit, how it can also affect um, other aspects and other elements of uh, of the world and other people. Towards the end, it kind of calls into question, you know, why why did I do this? What was the true what was the true reasoning of 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 why I did what I did or why I'm doing what I'm doing as a hero? And he really just goes through all this. It's very character driven. And he really goes through all this sacrifice, and you're really looking at it. You know his pain throughout the in, in, entire movie. There's also something that happens after that big conflict. It's I can just say that in super. It's it's a very different, very different thing that happens. You get to the end, and there's a very cleverly written, in my opinion. I don't want to call it a swerve. Not really an emotion. It's kind of an emotional swerve. But uh, you find out even after everything you know that he's gone through, there's still another plan in place. And it's it's not what you would expect. I thought it was good. It kind of struck me as like a public service announcement aimed at anybody who might be interested in becoming a superhero because it doesn't really glorify the lifestyle that mm-hmm. Kick-Ass has, you know. And we were sure. talking about mm-hmm. how it is funny that it came out two weeks before Kick-Ass because sometimes you have these movies that are so similar that come out so close together. Like I was thinking of, Armageddon and Deep Impact. Or Ants and a Bug Fly. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I think, and Super is very much, you know, you I, I watched Kick-Ass and I kind of knew what to expect going in and it was what I thought it was going in mm-hmm. and Super was definitely not and I can't really say too much because we want you to see it. It is a good movie, but yeah. it's just, it's dark. It's not what you'd expect and, yeah. and Rain Wilson just really nails it. Yeah, it it's, it expresses a lot of his um, diversity as an actor that I think a lot of people don't come to expect from him that are only kind of relatively familiar with him, you know, if like from The Office. Um, most people kind of, you know, see him as that comedic actor, that Dwight Schrute sure. uh, guy. And this, you know, this kind of turns that on its ear. You know, it it gives Rain Wilson a lot of juicy, dramatic stuff to sink his teeth into. Even though, it, you know, it is a, a dark comedy. There's a lot of dark comedy within it. Um, it does show a different side of Rain Wilson's ability, I think, as an actor. Right. And I do think that, too, being a dark comedy, it still has, its message is still more dramatic or profound than, like, Kick-Ass. I think Kick-Ass, the resolution of that movie is a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. Super is, it's got a very shiny surface. Yeah, yeah. We were talking earlier. It's 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 much more stylized. Yeah, so. it was still rated R, but it could have very easily gotten a PG thirteen rating. Right, if they I wanted. Mean, content to. wise, it's very surface level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, so one of the movies that I chose for today was from two thousand fourteen. It's uh, Predestination. Yes, it's from the Spirit Brothers. It's an Australian film. And this movie just really caught me off guard. I missed it when it was in theaters. I don't even know if it really had much of a wide theatrical release. Um, And basically, I saw it on the basis that I like Ethan Hawke and I like science fiction. So I was like, why not? And this is a movie that, for me, it's interesting from the standpoint of going out there on the limb to make this movie because it really is a movie that if you are not in the right mood to just submit yourself to the world that this movie is the universe of this film probably gonna have a bad time yeah um personally i when i watched it, i had a fantastic time it really 
presents itself as a thought experiment. And when I watched this movie, I had actually purchased it because it was, I think it was like $10 at the store. It was like Ethan Hawke, science fiction, $10, let's do it. Yeah. Not even worth a, a rental. I don't know if it's streaming available yet. If it is, I would certainly recommend it. I would try to go with as little, basically as little knowledge as possible. I could have read the back of the box. Kind of glad that I didn't. Mm-hmm. Because I think the the back of the box gives some stuff away, but I would say it kind of has this more serious time cop aspect to it. You have these this agency that is responsible. You could almost say for like writing the wrongs of the past or the future. They're able to travel through time, and you have Ethan Hawke as this this time agent on what's effectively his last mission. And I'll say too, it's probably his most important mission. Mm-hmm. It deals a lot with paradoxes but i think it does the paradoxes that we get from time travel and the thoughts that we have about like well how would this work it approaches it in a way that is engaging and fun to think about and when there are a couple times throughout the movie where you're kind of like i don't know about that or at least i was but Mm -hmm. but the the way that the actors carry it and it's ethan hawk and um Sarah Snook. Sarah Snook, yeah. Who is fantastic. Incredible, yeah. And they are just able to carry it through. I was, when uh, Sarah Snook, for a large part of the movie, narrates a lot of it, she kind of carries you through the story. The way that she's telling the story and just the way that she's acting throughout it, it was so engaging to me Mm -hmm. that I was able to just lose myself kind of in the plot and the story of the film. And it was one of those movies that when it was over, the only thing I could really bring myself to say was, wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and the it's one of those movies where the ending leaves you just like boom, just yes. like with an emotional like bomb that goes off and you're in thought, you're thinking. And it left goosebumps. Yeah. On my arms. Well, and what it <laughs> for me too while I was watching it because it's kind of it's this time travel story, you're trying to figure out there's you know, paradoxes involved, but it's kind of framed in the idea of like a who done it. Because Ethan Hawke is this time agent, you know, he's been on the trail of, I guess you could call him, well, it's a terrorist. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if you were, the setting of the movie doesn't take place in modern times, but it was like if you were to have someone that could go back in time to try and stop like 9-11. Right. What would you do? How would you find them? How would it, how would it change things? Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of has this framing of you're trying to figure out who this terrorist is. And throughout the movie, I'm focused on... You know, I'm, my brain is thinking the whole time trying to trying to figure this movie out. And I, for me, I, even if you're able to figure it out, I know I've read um, from some people they felt that it was predictable. To me, that didn't matter. Yeah, the way that the story is presented and everything like that, it was just so it was so much fun to watch and to think about. And I've gone back and watched it several times. It's something that um, even after the fact, it's really kind of fun to watch how the story unfolds you sold me i haven't i haven't seen that yeah it's i'd give it a shot i want to watch it soon yeah if not tonight i've yeah i've been uh also it's it's probably one of my favorite science fiction films currently Mm -hmm. i mean it's up there yeah and um it is it's just so beautifully executed and engaging and i mean it's one of those things where like you were saying it's like you know a lot of people you know, thought they kind of anticipated a lot of things that were coming, but the way that it was told, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it didn't matter. It's just like, I, I just wanted to stay with it. I wanted to have the story. I wanted the story to, to keep being told to me. And I think, I think too, what's, what I love about it and what I've, 
what I think about it, what it has in common with some of my favorite time store time travel stories, because for me, as far as like science fiction goes, I'm, I've always been a fan of stories of time travel, everything from back to the future. I love Looper, which came out oh, a couple yeah. of years ago. And what yeah. I think those stories and uh, predestination have in common is they don't try to explain the, the time travel aspect. Yeah. Time travel is just a thing. Yeah. It somehow it works. You know, the DeLorean mm-hmm. it has the flux capacitor, but who, what's a flux capacitor? Yeah. And Looper, time travel is invented, but the mm-hmm. mechanics of time travel aren't important in this. Right. They base, they tell you the day that time travel is invented, mm-hmm. and that's about all they tell you. Yeah. And from there, we just know that these characters are able to travel through time. Yeah, and like then the story... empower t- the audience that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have everything spoon-fed to me, I feel a little insulted. Like, you're telling me that I wouldn't have been able to put that together. Well, and I think, too, it just it speaks to how engaging the story the story, the story takes is. precedence yeah you don't need to know how you don't need to know how it works what's important is the story and these characters and, and what they're going mm-hmm, through the characters involved yeah and, um, I, and ethan yeah. hawk is fantastic oh yeah and yeah ethan hawk and sci-fi just works i don't know oh, yeah, also Gattaca. yeah well i make no apologies with this one uh it hits my nostalgia bone every single one of them Hmm. One of the guys from, one of the actors from House of the Devil, Tom Noonan, was in Monster Squad. He played Frankenstein's monster. And he was in another movie from 1993. (laughs) And they have a famous line. We'll see if Ryan will get this. Something is rotten in Denmark. And Hamlet is taking out the trash. (laughs) So I picked The Last Action Hero. And... (laughs) I recently rewatched this, and I think this movie gets kind of grouped in with some of the other. I mean, 1993 was a pretty huge year for like mindless action, and I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm with possibly the biggest Arnold Schwarzenegger fan that exists, <laughs> so I'm trying to be respectful. There's been some bad Jimmy, Arnold movies in my yeah. mind. Just. I thought Six Day was definitely not as that was that was not that's awesome. low grade Arnold. Yeah. But Last Action Hero, if you haven't seen it, it's like a movie inside of a movie. And it stars this kid who essentially represents me as a kid. That's why I love this movie so much. But all he ever wants to do is watch Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And essentially, I guess I kind of have to tell you that if you haven't seen it, because you've probably seen it, as I'm saying Last Action Hero, you're probably saying, oh, my God, seriously, the cameos alone from, like, Chevy Chase to Van Damme, Little Richard, Tina Turner, Ian McKellen, Anthony Quinn, MC Hammer, Damon Wayans. Am I missing anybody? Probably. <laughs> Probably. It is. It is. Oh, it is Maria Shriver. It is a pop culture piece, if, if for nothing else, it is an absolute representation of a period in time, man. Oh, yeah. And especially and, when and, we were young. And I think a huge <laughs> part of why I, lo- why I like this movie so much is because of the guy who directed it. Like, it's the guy, it's John McTiernan is the director, yeah. and he's mm-hmm. a author, and he wrote the Die Hard book, mm-hmm. and he directed it, and he directed Predator, Predator. and the, base, the movie is basically Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, comes off of the screen and into normal normal world as as me and you know it and he sees himself represented as this action hero and looks identical to Arnold Schwarzenegger but his name is Jack Slater 
And so it's just kind of like a self-aware meta, like movie inside of a movie. But I think that it's it, it accidentally becomes an action movie by parodying action movies. Well, what I think is really what's great about it too is if you th- for me it's like when the Expendables came out and the Expendables is basically them making this action movie while winking at the audience mm-hmm. but not being like explicit about it. Like the Expendables on its own is what you would want if you were to make an 80s action film today. Pure action, yeah. yeah. Just through and through. What Last Action Hero does is it it knows it, it's like so this aware. is the jo- this is the joke, mm-hmm. and we're just gonna go with it yeah. full tilt. And I think it's it's really effective. That, and I think that's a movie that I think was when it came out was damaged by its marketing. Mm-hmm. I don't think people understood it to be mm-hmm. as comedic as it is. But as great a star as Arnold is, as far as action, I think he's a fantastic comedic actor too. Sure. And I think um, if you look at the roles that he's played, as far as like. True Lies, there's great comedy in True Lies, mm-hmm. um, and I just think too that like Arnold being able to like poke fun at himself and kind of you don't think he gets he doesn't I don't think he gets much credit for his acting ability. You just think of him as the hulking man that's carrying the gun and blowing up people, but him being able to sit there and like poke fun at himself and have you know some great moments in the Last Action Hero I think shows what range he does have, at least from the comedic and action standpoint. Mm-hmm. He's not gonna. You're not gonna be crying at very many Arnold Schwarzenegger movies because of the drama involved. But right. I think he's able to carry that role very well. And and just the um, the tropes that they bring out and the the nods to other other popular movies. It's it's kind of like watching a uh, late '80s, early '90s time capsule. Time capsule, yeah. Of cinema. You're just like right. It's just a chunk of time just ripped out, and you're just like. And nowadays going back and looking at it. the self-awareness aspect of it I think is totally awesome and I love the movie within a movie device has always yeah. been one of my favorite devices a movie it's mm-hmm. another reason why I I love Scream 3 Scream 3 is actually I, one of my movies are that way I love all yeah. the screams like Scream 3 where they're making you know I think it's like Stab 4 Stab four, four or something I think yeah. yeah it's like one ahead or something but they're making Stab 4 within Scream 3 and it's just this, it's, I love that device. Yeah. Or have you seen, or um, one of my favorites is Shadow of the Vampire. Shadow of the Vampire, yeah, I you love know, Shadow of the Vampire. The idea that you're making Nosferatu, but the vampire is real. Yes. So yeah, the, the this little kid gets a magic movie ticket. He gets thrown into the movie world, and it's these two parallel realities that exist. And um, but yeah, all of these little nuances and touches like f murray abraham is in it who's just great and um he plays a cop and the little boy sees f murray abraham once he's in the movie world and he says oh that's the guy who killed mozart while f murray abraham was in amadeus and he killed mozart (laughs) and so arnold keeps going back to that joke (laughs) mo who zot and it's just to- it's totally silly. If you get it half an hour in and you still think it's really silly, just turn it off. I, it's probably not for you, I guess. Yeah, but I would say it's in the same vein as like an airplane or like yeah. a gun. Yeah, it is. It is kind of a screwball comedy, but just if you if you love the tropes of cinema and don't have a problem poking fun at them and are just looking to have just something that you don't have to think too much about, like I guess 
predestination is pretty cerebral. Very, I would say, yeah. Um, Last action cerebral. hero is just very much like just a popcorn phone. Popcorn, I want to yeah. laugh. You want to have fun. It's entertainment. Yeah. But I love it because Ian McKellen plays death, and once the villain gets a hold of this magic ticket, he realizes that he can pull any character from any movie out of uh, the screen. So he starts naming off all of these famous villains and Hannibal Lecter, and so they bring out death from the seventh seal, and it's Ian McKellen, a very... Well, not very, but younger Ian McKellen. <laughs> it's just like that's that's interesting. It is totally passable, like summer fun film. But that's that's a that's a fun idea. I I can I can get yeah. behind that. Yeah. And also, yeah. most Arnold movies, as soon as they start, I'm like a little kid again. You know that <laughs> famous blue VHS screen right before yes. you hit play. It's <laughs> yeah. so yeah. magical. Yeah, that boy wasn't really in anything else other than My Girl too. Get to the VCR, Jimmy. <laughs> Pretty much. Press play. Do it now. <laughs> do not dub my tapes. <laughs> so that's my second one. We were talking about fight films briefly last night. We were we were like texting back and forth about fight films, and um, I wanted to rewatch uh, the Protector with Tony Jaa. We were talking a lot about Tony Jaa and how impressive he is and his movies are. But I think uh, just for this moment, I just want to throw like a couple. Like fight films out there that I think if you if people haven't seen them I think they're definitely worth checking out. So I'm a big uh, kung fu film nerd, um, and just general kind of fight film type person, boxing, martial arts, everything like that. Um, one of uh, one of the big things about the Protector, which is the first one I want to throw out there, um, if you haven't seen it, um, it is a Thai film starring. Tony Jaa, who is an incredible um, uh, Muay Thai martial artist, and um, he is also the um, uh, character in the film, plays the main character, uh, uh, does a bunch of the choreography himself. Uh, what I look for in a lot of fight films, um, they're, they're, it's different depending on what mood I'm in. Um, sometimes I want to watch a very practical fight film and sometimes eh, you know sometimes I want to watch something that's a little bit more stylized uh the protector um the plot of the protector is basically it is a man on a mission <laughs> because his 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 elephant was stolen <laughs> and it's it's, so it's John Wick it's kinda, yeah exactly. it's kind of like John Wick or if you're familiar with you know Martin McDonough and his plays the lieutenant of Inishmore it's kind uh where um uh, uh, I think Padraic is the main character. He comes, he's uh, in the IRA and he comes home and someone's killed his cat, Wee Thomas. And so, like, the whole play is like this vengeance tear, you know, just about getting revenge for, you know, the murder of his cat. And of course, there's a lot of subtext in there. The, the murder of his cat is what kind of all, all revolves around that kind of inciting, you know, incident that kind of sets everything in motion. Um, one thing I admire about Tony John, he, he's worth. All of his films are um, worth to look up. Um, Tony Jaa, J-A-A. There's two A's in that. Um, But he implores a lot of and um, practicality into his fight sequences. Uh, There's a, I think there's a healthy blend of uh, practical, you know, aspects of what a a real fight is, and then also he incorporates um, uh, the style of Muay Thai. Um, so if you're familiar with martial arts or if you're a fan of like 
you know, mixed martial arts or anything like that, you kind of probably know what Muay Thai is or you've like at least heard it referenced. But he really captures the actual um, style and expresses it on screen in a very practical way. Like, how would you, you know, use Muay Thai in a, in a practical fight? And this is in a lot of his other films, too, the Ong Bak movies. Um, they kind of, the sequels get a little bit more fancy, but in the original Ong Bak, the Thai warrior, um, it's, you know, a very practical, you know, expression of, of fighting. And I really appreciate that because, you know, there's um, a lot of movies like, you can go back to like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is really focused on kind of the stylized sort of dancing, you know, sort of aspects to fighting and expressing more of kind of like the movement that um, that is in, you know, the Kung Fu style. And of course they fly through the air and there's a lot, you know, there's, it's very sensationalized and it's beautiful. You know, it's a beautiful film, but you know, um, Tony Jaw takes the aspects of like what happens if you really get into a, a real fight, mm-hmm. where it's going to end up, and then incorporating what he knows as a as a master martial artist um, into that. And I think that is a throwback to what Bruce Lee did mm-hmm. um, in his films. Bruce Lee was all about practical fight scenes. He didn't. Uh, Bruce Lee was like interesting. I'm a big Bruce Lee fan. One of the interesting things about Bruce Lee is, you know, he's trained in Wing Chun, which is a form of Kung Fu, which is like a lot of infighting uh, and just a lot of punching, a lot of low kicks. And he never did any high kicks, like, to the head or anything. Uh, And it was because his opinion was, and he talks about it um, in Jeet Kune Do, is um, in a real fight, you're not going to be throwing really high kicks like that a lot of fights happen fast they're going to go to the ground you know so it's important to you know realize like kind of like what what you're supposed to do realistically in a situation like that until we met chuck norris <laughs> and chuck norris actually changed bruce's mind and he was and bruce lee was like you know you'd never you'd never throw a kick like that in a real fight that's impractical you threw so you know it's just you know kind of you know it's it's kind of unrealistic to how, you know, um, it just wouldn't fit into, like, how a real fight would transpire. And um, I think Chuck Norris said something along the lines of, yes, but wouldn't it be, you know, good to have the, you know, nice to have the ability um, to kick everywhere. And I think it kind of changed Bruce's mind a little bit in the way that he fought in real life and then the way that he actually went on and and choreographed fights in uh the subsequent films um well however many did before you know he passed which was way too early but um the protector if you haven't seen the protector i think it's a good film that kind of will introduce you to like tony jaw and if you like that i would definitely say check out his, his whole body of work he's probably him and donnie yen flashpoint um, if you haven't seen the movie Flashpoint, Donnie is also in the Ip Man movies, and the Ip Man movies are based on uh, Bruce Lee's one of Bruce Lee's instructors, actually. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on Ip Man. Oh yeah, yeah. and I'd like to too. So my uh, my second film is uh, one of my one of my deeper cuts as far as <laughs> movies. Um, it's one that I've yet to really find someone else that has really watched this one, and I would love. Um, for more people to have seen it. 
It's called Tampopo. It's a 1985 Japanese film directed by uh, Yuzo Itami, and it stars uh, Sutomu uh, Yamazaki and a young Ken Watanabe, which ah, people might yes. know from Inception, right. the new Godzilla, mm-hmm. uh, some other Nolan works. Um, Batman Begins. And this movie, to me, is just a delight to watch. It's It's just a lot of fun. It's been, when it was marketed... It was marketed as the first ramen western. We're all familiar with ramen as the um, instant noodle. Um, but there are ramen uh, restaurants in Japan. And the spaghetti western from the 1960s, like Sergio uh, Leone um, films, it takes that idea of the spaghetti western, but it takes it literally. So this movie is basically the overarching plot is you have um, this character, Gora, and his uh, kind of sidekick gun. They ride into town on their stallions in this film represented by an 18-wheel big rig, and they're hungry. And they stumble into this ramen shop run by this widow named Tampopo, and her ramen is terrible. Mm. And so the movie then uses these spaghetti western tropes to you have the white hat and the black hat and the woman in distress, Um and basically, they just work to get her ramen in shape uh, with the goal of making it the best ramen restaurant in town. That's wonderful. <laughs> and it never takes itself seriously. It always it knows that it's poking fun at these Western tropes. Um, but what I love about it is broader than the, just the story and her bad ramen, this woman and her bad ramen. Um, throughout the movie, peppered throughout, you have these vignettes of people in their relationship with food and the broader context of culture and society. And because it's something that we all engage in and every culture has its cuisine. Mm-hmm. And these stories are oftentimes hilarious. Sometimes they miss the mark, but they're always engaging. You have everything from a grocery store clerk who's like getting it towards the end of a shift and this old woman walks in and just starts squeezing all the soft food. <laughs> so what it plays out is this game of cat and mouse with this guy trying. And in this scene, no dialogue is spoken. Yeah, you, you sent that clip to me, and it was yeah. very Marx Brothers. Yeah. Um, you also have a, a scene that plays out. It's like a, a fancy business lunch, and you have all these businessmen. But the menu is French. And the only person at this business lunch that is, like, capable of ordering off this French menu is a mailroom clerk. Um, And so you have, you know, just the way that it ties these in. And these stories don't relate back to the main arc at all. They're just kind of like these side stories. And you'll have, so you'll have the story of um, the main characters working on the ramen and then the camera will pan over and across town and you'll find yourself almost kind of like a side sketch, like you'd, think of maybe how Monty Python would maybe do something or um but yeah watching that movie it's just hard not to for me anyway it's just hard not to watch that movie and smile um one of the reasons I think that would actually appeal to a lot of people even though it's if you hear if you read about the movie if you watch some clips online you might think well maybe this isn't for me but I remember when I was in college, I was a resident advisor and I had all these college freshmen basically that I had to plan a floor event for. And I was like, well, college students love ramen. 
Right, right. <laughs> and we need a movie night. We're going to watch Tampopo. <laughs> and I probably had, of the 40 or so residents, we probably had 25 people in a room that sat there from beginning to end watching the subtitled Japanese film from 1985. Wow, that's good reception. That's Which great. is just something that you would not expect that's to get. It's a rewarding experience yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I would highly recommend Tampopo. It is hard to find. It's out of print as far as DVD. I th- believe you can find it in parts on YouTube or some of those other streaming sites. People have uploaded it. Mm-hmm. I would love it one day if it would become like a Criterion collection. Um, Richard Ebert gives it four stars. Um, and I believe it's also has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. So if you ever have the chance looking for something that's just fun and delightful to watch, Tempopo. Tempopo. Well, it's been yeah. really fun. Unfortunately, we're at the end of our hour, and I got two movies to add to my uh, movie queue. Um, but check out movieshowtheater.com. I'm going to link some trailers uh, to the show notes, and I'm going to find you guys a way to watch these movies. So check that out. You can also hear all of our other episodes that we've done. But if you want to watch something bad enough, Google watch such and such online and the gods of the internet will find you a way, I promise. Okay, so yes, uh, we will be having open casting auditions for a film that I am co-producing um, with my uh, with my good friend Dakota Kuhlman and Exit Reality Films entitled Remote. And it is the first chapter in the expanded universe that we are creating um, called The Red String Theory. So if anybody out there is interested in auditioning and being in our independent feature film, um, the open casting auditions will be at the Peoria Heights Library, March 5th and March 12th, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So uh, come on out and see us. So next week we're going to be doing Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978 and The Faculty. So until then, I'm Jimmy. I am Matt. I'm Ryan. And you've been listening to Movie Show.